So appropriate that at a Christmas time like this, we should begin a series of studies in the life of Jesus Christ, and that's what we're going to do this morning by looking at the book of Matthew. We will embark on a journey through the book that will lead us into his genealogy and the announcement of the, his birth to Mary and Joseph today. And then next week, uh, we will look at his birth right before we celebrate Christmas. But first, let me give you a little bit of background into the book. Matthew was one of the disciples of Jesus. He was a tax collector before he came to be a follower of Christ. Apparently, in the service of Herod Antipas, located in the town of Capernaum in the Sea of Galilee. So he was very wealthy, as is indicated by the fact that, that Matthew gave a big feast for all of his friends when he first became a follower of Christ. Though he was wealthy, he felt uh, an inner need within him, the need for something more than money could buy. And therefore, when he met Jesus, he left his lucrative tax business, tax collecting business, jeopardized his wealth and career to follow an obscure, uneducated, uh, poor carpenter who was an itinerant minister, preacher, who was unpopular with the establishment. The early church unanimously tells us that Matthew is the author of this gospel, though we're not told within the gospel itself who wrote it. They say that this was the first gospel written and that Matthew wrote it originally in, in the Aramaic language, which was the uh, native tongue of Israel during these days. And then apparently it was translated into Greek. But as is true with all of the Gospels, there's something unique about each of them. Part of Matthew's uniqueness is found in the predominance of, of the fulfillment motif. Matthew includes, as many times as all three of the other Gospels combined, the phrase, this came to pass, that what was spoken through the mouth of the prophet might be fulfilled, when he said, and then he quotes from a prophet. Now, the reason for this, apparently, is that Matthew was written to a Jewish audience. Because the Jews of that day read their Old Testament, were careful students of it, and to them, they couldn't understand the ministry of Jesus Christ. Because as they read their Old Testaments, the pre predominance of the emphasis upon the Messiah was that he would be one who would come and free the nation from the oppression of the Romans. And they looked at Jesus, and he obviously didn't do that. Now, we, from our perspective, can see clearly that the Old Testament prophesies two comings of Christ. The first, to suffer and die for our sins, and then the second, to come as a, as a political and military uh, conqueror who will set up a kingdom whereby he will rule the whole world. But that was not at all clear to the Jews of Jesus' day. Jesus was a stumbling block to them. And so Matthew writes, showing them throughout that Jesus was indeed the king prophesied by the Old Testament, the Messiah. And the things he did in his life and in his ministry did fulfill these prophets, prophecies of the Old Testament. The second way in which the Gospel of Matthew is unique is in its order. It's more highly structured than any of the other Gospels. You'll find an outline for the, the structure within your bulletin this morning. After the first four chapters, which form an introduction to the book, Matthew's Gospel breaks into five sections. Each one begins with a, a speech or a discourse section. The Sermon on the Mount is the first. Then after each of these discourses come the words, and it came to pass after Jesus had finished his teaching that he 
and then it launches into a brief uh, action section describing some miracles, his conflicts with the Pharisees, his crucifixion and, uh, and resurrection. It appears that Matthew chose to organize his book this way because he was emphasizing again this theme of fulfillment. The Jews were looking to Moses, who was the giver of the law, who wrote the five books of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament. And Matthew, by his symbolic arrangement, is saying, no, Jesus is the one who replaces Moses. He comes and gives uh, a revelation from God, a fivefold revelation as well. And he's the one who has replaced him. Well, the first chapter of Matthew begins with a, a genealogy. The introduction to that genealogy is given in the first verse. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, this is not the title to the whole book. The whole book is not the genealogy, but it's the title to the beginning. And, and in this introduction to it, he says that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Again, emphasizing that he is the fulfillment of all that the nation of Israel had looked forward to. In saying that he's the son of David, he's thinking about the prophecy made to David in 2 Samuel 7, which God said, David, your seed will reign upon the throne forever. And Matthew is saying, in spite of what some of you may feel, Jesus is this seed of, of David, the, the son of David, who is reigning and will reign upon the throne forever. Likewise, he is the son of Abraham. In Genesis 12, God had promised to Abraham that through Abraham, all of the nations of the world would be blessed. To the skeptics, it looked like Jesus was just a preacher who ended up in a tragic death. But Matthew is saying, no, he is the son of Abraham. He is the one who in God's plan will bring blessing to all of the world. And then he goes into the genealogy itself. And let's read, read through this genealogy together. To Abraham was born Isaac, and to Isaac Jacob, and to Jacob Judah and his brothers. And to Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And to Be Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron, Ram, and to Ram was born Aminadab, and to Aminadab, Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon. And to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab, and to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth, and to Obed, Jesse, and to Jesse was born David the king. This may seem long and tedious and boring to you, but in a minute I'll show you something very exciting about it. Second portion. And to David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah, in other words, Bathsheba. And to Solomon was born Rehoboam, and to Rehoboam Abijah, and to Abijah Asa. And to Asa was born Jehoshaphat, and to Jehoshaphat Joram, and to Joram Uzziah. And to Uzziah was born Jotham, and to Jotham Ahaz, and to Ahaz Hezekiah. And to Hezekiah was born Manasseh, and to Manasseh Am Ammon, and to Ammon Josiah, and to Josiah was born Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, to Jeconiah was born Shealtiel, and to Shealtiel Zerubbabel, and to Zerubbabel was born Abiud, and to Abiud Eliakim, and to Eliakim Azor, and to Azor was born Zadok, and to Zadok Achim, and to Achim Eliud, and to Eliud was born Eleazar, and to Eleazar Matan, uh, and to Mathon, Jacob, 
And to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Then in verse 17, Matthew summarizes what he has just said. Therefore, all the generations from David, from Abraham to David, are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the time of Christ, 14 generations. Now it's apparent that Matthew is choosing 14 generations in each of these sections. It's a deliberate uh, way to symbolize again that Jesus is the fulfillment of the national aspirations. And it's evident because to get, come up with 14 in each group, Matthew has to leave out a few along the way. In the middle group, there are three kings that are left out. Now, why 14? Well, some suppose that it's, since seven is the Hebrew number of perfection, he is saying that Jesus is three times double perfection. And that may be what he's symbolizing. Many other scholars feel that what he's doing is, is again emphasizing that he is the son of David. Because in the ancient world, the, the ancient people didn't have Number, uh, uh, numerals like we do, one, two, three. Instead, they used letters to indicate different numbers. For instance, A would be one, and B two, and C three, etc. Well, the letters for the word David in Hebrew add up to the number fourteen. And many uh, suppose that, that Matthew is choosing this grouping of fourteen to say Jesus is David, David, David. He is the fulfillment of all the Davidic hopes the Messiah, the king who would reign, who would sit upon the throne. Many have pointed out that this genealogy in Matthew is different from that in Luke. And critics say, well, obviously somebody goofed. But most evangelical scholars feel that the uh, genealogy here is that of Joseph, the legal father of Jesus, though he's not his natural father. And the one in Luke is, is the genealogy of Mary, though Joseph's name is placed there in Luke also because uh, because he was the legal head of that family. And Mary's genealogy then would, would give the natural descent of Jesus. Now, probably most of you were thinking as we read through all those names that they are, it is kind of a long and tedious list. It seems rather boring. But there's at least one very important application that we can derive from this genealogy. That is, that God loves and accepts sinners. Now we see this from the inclusion of four women within this list. Not that women alone are sinners or they're necessarily worse than us men, but some of us think so. Myself excluded. But the inclusion of a woman in a genealogical list is, is uh, extraordinary. But there are four women that are included here that point out the fact that God loves sinners. The first one is found in verse 3, the one at the end of the line, Tamar. It says, To Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Judah married his oldest son to Tamar. That son died, and according to the law of the land, the Leverite law of marriage, he was required to give his second son to her because she was not only left a widow but also left without children, which would be a reproach upon a woman at that time. She married the second son, and he too died. Judah now had one son left, and he was starting to get the picture that somehow Tamar was jinxed. He didn't want to risk losing his third and only uh, remaining son on her. 
So he postponed and postponed and postponed giving her uh, him to her in marriage. So Tamar said, I need to, uh, I don't like being reproached. I need to have children, become a mother. So she dressed herself up as a prostitute, disguised herself, and met Judah himself, her father-in-law, twice her father-in-law, out in the country, and asked if he would like to lay with her. He was very obliging to her, and these twins were conceived upon that union. So here is the inclusion of one who played the prostitute, who committed an act of incest with her father-in-law. But God included a person like this within his line. The second such person is found in verse 5. To Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab. Uh, Rahab was a prostitute, a Canaanite prostitute, who lived in the city of Jericho. And all of the land of Canaan was under God's curse. He told his people that when you come in and take over the land, the inhabitants are so corrupt, and there'll be such a corrupting influence over the whole earth, they're so deserving of destruction, I want you to wipe them out entirely. Well, one of those who was under this curse was Rahab. And yet, because of her faith in the real God, the God of Israel, God spared her. And he was not ashamed to include a prostitute within his lineage. The third woman we find in verse 5. Uh, again, the end of the verse, and to Obed, uh, and was born Obed by Ruth. Ruth was Boaz's uh, wife. She was from Moab. According to Deuteronomy 23.3, the people of Ammon and Moab were not allowed, were not to be allowed into the assembly of Israel to the tenth generation as punishment upon them because when Israel was marching up from Egypt into the land about to conquer it, they asked permission to pass through the lands of Moab and Ammon. And the Moabites and Ammonites refused. And God says, as a punishment upon them, none of their descendants will enter the congregation of Israel to the tenth generation. Well, this was not yet the tenth generation. And yet God, by his grace, decided to rescind that prohibition for the sake of Ruth. Include her within the nation, not only the nation, but though a foreigner, within the promised line again. The fourth woman is one whose life was and crime was so heinous that she's not even mentioned by name. But she's found in verse 6. And to David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. In other words, Bathsheba. We all know the story of David and Bathsheba. In spite of the, uh, of the crime of that relationship, God also included her. Well, you may be a prostitute, an adulterer, a murderer, a thief, a fornicator, homosexual. You may have done, uh, been a Satan worshiper or persecuted the church or done some kind of, uh, of crime against God in your past that would lead you to think, I am so bad that God couldn't accept me. Yet he includes these four women within this list as a sign to all of us that no matter how bad we've been, he wants to accept us. He's not ashamed to have people like this in his family. These were his roots, his background. He wasn't ashamed to include them. And he's not ashamed to include you and me and his family either. You may be one who thinks that because of your crimes, God is not able to forgive you. 
And therefore, you come to church, you look longingly towards God, but you think, I could never put my faith in Christ. I could never expect him to forgive me. But these women are included as a sign that God wants to accept even you. Or you may be a believer, and you may think, I have done such horrible things, even as a Christian, that surely I'm in the uh, an outcast to God. He cannot fully accept me after what I've done. And yet again, the message is the same. God loves and accepts sinners. He's not ashamed to call them members of his family and include them even in his own line. Well, verses 18 to 25 tell us of the announcement of the birth of Jesus. Let's read those verses. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph arose from his sleep, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took her as his wife, and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Now the first thing that strikes me in this passage is the positive example that Joseph is to us. According to the, well, he was engaged to Mary, and according to the laws of the land, uh, the Jewish laws at that time, engagement was a binding contract that required a divorce to break it up. And while they were engaged, he found out that she was pregnant. Now, how would you feel if you were engaged to a woman, you loved her, were looking forward to that wedding day, and you could be fully one, and you found out that even while she was engaged, professing to love you and be committed to you, she was running around with other men. Well, I would be outraged. I'd feel deeply hurt and feel that she had, had transgressed me. And I very possibly would want some kind of revenge. I would at least, I think, want to go around and tell everybody this horrible thing that she had done to me. And in that way, get back at her somewhat. And yet we are told here, in verse 19, Joseph, her husband, meaning here her uh, betrothed husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away. It's a beautiful example to us of one who turned the other cheek. His desire was to do best for her. He didn't want to disgrace her. He didn't want to bring her before everybody and say, look what she did to me, and demand punishment upon her. It's an example that we should do the same thing when we're wronged by other people. Even if we have to do something, do it secretly. Not bring the disgrace of that person into the full view of, uh, of everybody else. We should not seek to go around and spread the bad reports of this person and all the things that he or she did to me and embitter other people to him or her. Now, Joseph was wondering what to do 
Uh, it said he, he had considered this. He was pondering what he should do. He wanted to put her away secretly, didn't want to make a spectacle out of her. But also, he was considering what he should do as a, as a righteous Jew. Because according to the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 21 and 22, it says that a, a woman who commits immorality, who's unfaithful during this time of, uh, of engagement, should be stoned to death for her transgression. Moses didn't want to bring, I mean, uh, Joseph didn't want to bring the full force of the law upon her. He was not out for revenge. He wanted to, to protect her in some way. And as he was pondering what to do, the angel came to him and said, Joseph, don't be afraid to marry her because that which is, which is within her is, is conceived of the Holy Spirit and therefore she has not been unfaithful to you. And the angel said to Joseph further in verse 21, And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. And the name Joshua means Jehovah saves. So even his name was chosen because of its symbolic nature. He will save his people from their sins, the angel says. Save his people from their sins? Well, this is not really what the Jews wanted at this time. And it may have surprised Joseph somewhat. Because they had the law, and the rabbis had figured out ways in which a man could actually live up to the law. Paul says in Philippians 3 that according to the law and the interpretations that the rabbis had made, I, I was blameless. There wasn't a problem of sin for me. Besides, if you did slip up, you had the sacrifices to cover it. No, what the Jews of that day wanted was not somebody to save them from their sin. What they wanted was somebody to save them from Rome. They considered that their biggest need was for some kind of political and economic deliverer. Because though the Romans gave them peace, they were their oppressors. And it was a humiliation to be under their rule. And the, having the Romans there meant the intrusion of paganism into this holy nation. And furthermore, they had to put up with their heavy taxes. Now, they didn't need a savior from sins. They, they needed a savior from Rome. This sounds very contemporary, doesn't it? I wonder if we went downtown in Boise and took a, a poll, a survey of the man on the street and said, what is your biggest need? What is your nation's biggest need? We'd get responses like, well, I, I need a better job or more money or a spouse or we need a, an end to the problem of inflation or an end to the energy crisis or the Iranian crisis or something like this. But God says, though you may perceive that these things are very important, your biggest need is for a savior from sins. And that's why he chose Jesus to be this. He said, Mary will bear a son and he will save his people from their sins. Because this is our biggest need. We may be afflicted and troubled by financial problems, inflation, an energy crunch, have political problems that we're wrestling with. And yet the message to Joseph is just a reminder to us that mankind's biggest problem is that of sin. This has application to us, uh, all of us personally. For some of us, it might mean that we need to reevaluate our lives. 
We may think that our biggest problem is for security, financial security. And we want to be one of those uh, New York Live football players and crash across the, the end zone to financial security and say, I made it. I'm set up for the rest of my life. But we may need to, to rearrange our priorities and see that, well, I'm going to live past death. I'm going to have to meet God there if I escape them all of this life and keep them at arm's length. Therefore, my biggest need is to have my sins taken care of. Or it may have application to uh, to those of us who are already Christians. As we analyze people's problems, it's very easy to have our hearts moved and want to do something, and we should, for people who are having a, a physical crisis, for those who don't have enough money to pay the bills, or people who are starving to death in Cambodia and elsewhere. And yet as we analyze things from God's perspective, how much more should our hearts go out to those who are dying in their sins? They may or may not have food. They may even have it in abundance. And yet our hearts should go out and we should be moved to do what we can also for those who are dying in their sins to bring to them the liberating message that God has provided his son whereby we be saved from our sins. The angel, or Matthew, goes on here and, and comments on the birth of Jesus and says, Now all this took place, the conception by the Holy Spirit, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which, translated, means God with us. Now this verse comes from the seventh chapter of the prophet Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah. Now, if you look back in that chapter, you find something that may be, be rather confusing. Namely, it doesn't appear that this is a prophecy of the birth of Christ, if you look in that context. Ahaz was the king of Judah at the time. He was being threatened by uh, a couple of political leaders to his north, the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, and the king of Syria. They were threatening to come and attack his land. And Ahaz was contemplating sending an emissary up to Assyria, a greater power, and say, can you come take care of these guys for me? At that time, the prophet Isaiah was sent by God, and God said, don't worry about these guys. I will take care of them. They won't trouble you long. Matter of fact, ask for, ask for me for a sign, and I'll give you a sign to prove to you that I'm in control of your situation. But Ahaz, pretending to be religious but being very irreligious, said, Oh, I don't want to bother God with a sign. I don't want to make him go out of his way to do something. Isaiah, seeing his heart and seeing that it was really an act of unbelief, says, Okay, God's going to give you a sign. A young woman is going to bear a son. And his name will be Emmanuel. And before that son reaches an age in which he knows enough to, to know the difference between good and evil, whether that's three or six or twelve or whatever, before he reaches that age, those nations whom you fear, Israel and Syria, are going to be conquered by Assyria, but the Assyrians won't stop there. They will come on down south and conquer the land of Judah as well and almost destroy your land. And this you will have as a punishment for the fact that you did not trust in me, but instead trusted in the king of Assyria to deliver you. 
Now, it's interesting to see the way that divine inspiration works. Because Isaiah chose a word uh, in the Hebrew language which can mean virgin or it can mean young woman. More commonly, it means virgin, but it can mean a young woman. And it seems evident from the context that he's prophesying there the birth of some child within Ahaz's own time. Some say it's Ahaz's son. Some think it's uh, Isaiah's son. We're not really sure. But the point is, before this child gets to be a, uh, an age whereby he can, uh, wherein he can discern the difference between good and evil, the uh, Assyrians are going to come and, and uh, almost destroy the land of Judah. And yet he chooses a word that more normally means virgin, signifying that maybe there was something beyond the birth of this child in Isaiah's set. Uh, to which he was referring. When the Greek translators, when, when the, uh, by the year about 200, most of the Jews had forgotten how to speak Hebrew. Greek was the commercial language of the day, and so a bunch of Greek scholars gathered together and translated the Old Testament into Greek. And that translation is called the Septuagint, after the 70 translators. And in that translation, they chose a Greek word which can only mean virgin. It seems a little bit strange that they would do that. But Matthew quotes from the Greek version and says, though this was predicting a birth of a son in Isaiah's day, it was foreshadowing the birth of a greater one who would lie beyond, the birth of Jesus Christ, who would fulfill this prophecy in even a greater way, because he and he alone would truly be born of a virgin. Now, some have suggested that the necessity of the, of the virgin birth is called for for theological reasons. Some have said that, that if uh, Jesus were born of a natural father, he would inevitably have had a sinful nature. And they say that the sin nature is passed on through the father. Well, this may or may not be. The Bible really doesn't indicate that. The reason for the virgin birth, the best clue we get to the reason for the virgin birth can be found by looking at the background in Isaiah. And there he says, this birth will be a sign. And it seems that the, the major reason for the virgin birth was that it's a sign. And here a sign of the uniqueness of this person. His name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. His virgin birth is the sign that God is with us and he has become flesh to dwell among us in the person of Jesus Christ. Verses 24 and 25, we see that Joseph obeyed God, obeyed what the angel told him. And he uh, took Mary, made her his wife. In verse 25 it says, he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And the clear implication is that she was not the ever virgin Mary, as, as uh, some say. And he called his name Jesus, as the angel commanded. Let's review what we learn through this first chapter. First of all, from the genealogy, we learn and reminded of the fact that God loves and accepts sinners, which is good news to us, because that's who we are. And secondly, we see that God has done something for sinners. He has sent his son, whom we, we see in verse 21, of whom we see it said, you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. God's message to you and me is that I love you, I want to accept you. Therefore, I have done something for your sin because it's your sin that keeps you away from me. Now, you may be one who has just been investigating the Christian faith. 
Or you may be one who has been in church all your life but have never really understood what it's all about. This would be a very appropriate time this morning as we prepare for the Christmas season to discover for yourself the true meaning of Christmas. That God wants to accept you. He wants to love you and give you a new life. But God has certain provisions because of his holy and righteous character. He says if you want to be accepted, there's only one way. And that's through believing in, accepting what Jesus has done for your sin. To pay for it, to cover it up so that God can now freely accept you. It would be appropriate for you, if that's where you are this morning, to just make a prayer and turn to him. Say, Lord, I understand now why you died, why you came into this world, and I want that new life for myself. Thank you that you died for my sins. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you for this reminder in this first chapter of Matthew that you do love us, that you are a God of grace, that you're not ashamed to have notorious sinners become part of your family. We thank you for that, Father, because many of us here feel that that's what we are. We feel that we have done things in our past that are very grievous to you and make us totally unworthy of you. Lord, we thank you that in, the fact, that in spite of the fact that we are unworthy of you, you make us worthy by giving to us Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous, so that we can be righteous because we have him. We can stand before your presence cleansed and free. Lord, if there are some here who have not yet received this message for themselves, I pray that you would help them to do so this morning. Open their eyes to enable them to understand and their, open their hearts to make them want you and all that you have for them. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.